I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. As with many humanitarian crises in the past, the international armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine has revived heated discussions on the humanitarian principles and their relevance in contemporary armed conflict. We have all been reminded how the principles, in particular the principle of neutrality, can lead to misunderstanding and even outrage, and why they nonetheless remain such an essential compass and operational tool in highly polarized situations. Today, I'm in Geneva and I'll be navigating these murky waters with our own Niels Meltzer, the director of ICRC's International Law, Policy, and Humanitarian Diplomacy Department, who's here to help explore how the humanitarian principles apply to contemporary armed conflict. Thanks for joining us, Niels. Thank you very much for having me, Lizzie. So I'd like to start by framing why we're here today having this conversation, because the fundamental humanitarian principles of humanity, impartiality, neutrality, and independence constitute the four common principles to international humanitarian law and the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. But it goes beyond that to Médecins Sans Frontières, UN resolutions, the European Union, the African Union, and other humanitarian organizations. These are cardinal points of a compass, crucial for dealing with the operational and ethical dilemmas of humanitarian actions. These principles are among the oldest reference governing humanitarian action, both in terms of its fundamental character, as well as its practical deployment. So this rich foundation of the principles really begs the question, why now? Why are we talking about this right now today? The movement codified the principles in 1965 and followed them for decades before that. So why are we having a conversation and going back to the basics about the nature of and need for the humanitarian principles? Yeah, well, I think, as you said, Lizzie, uh, the current discussion was triggered most recently by the international armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which has resulted in strong polarization of public opinion, and where everyone, governments, organizations, cultural and religious institutions, even private corporations and individuals are expected to take sides. This trend has put pressure also on the Red Cross to take sides and has given rise to questions about the validity and legitimacy of its neutrality and impartiality, but also its confidential bilateral approach with all parties to an armed conflict. And I think it's important to remember that this is not the first time this happens. It's a recurring phenomenon that usually arises in connection with any kind of a watershed event that polarizes public opinion. Today, it may be the international armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine, but similarly, Something like this happened after 9-11 when we had the so-called war on terror, which was also very strongly politicized and where there was a lot of pressure to take the right side. Thank you. And thanks for flagging as well that this is a, a very valuable point because sometimes when this issue arises, people do think this is the first time and it's not a new phenomenon at all. In fact, I, I teach a class on international humanitarian law and each semester, this is the issue that comes up, the controversy surrounding neutrality and trying to really unpack what it means. Um, now, I tell my students during that class that different humanitarian organizations have different comparative advantages and that the ICRC is arguably the most strictly neutral 
and MSF perhaps a little less so, all the way down to the name and shame advocacy or activist organizations that you and I have both worked for in the past as well. So first, would you agree that I'm doing a good job in teaching this and trying to explain uh, how organizations have distinct and important roles? And if so, how do you think we can strike the right balance? Well, I'm certainly convinced you're doing a good job at teaching IHL, Lizzie, and I have no doubt at all in that regard. Um, but as your question, clearly there's plenty of organizations that do humanitarian work and uh, address humanitarian needs in, in, in action, and um, they may, may be defending also certain legal standards such as human rights law or refugee law or the protection, as we do, of victims of armed conflict. Um, but the working methods of each organization can differ because they really depend on their specific mandate. And they have to enable those organizations to actually fulfill their mandate. In our case, the mission of the ICRC is to protect the lives and dignity of victims of armed conflict and other situations of violence and to provide them with assistance. So clearly, our working methods must allow us to do that, to work in very dangerous and violent contexts of, of armed conflict on the battlefield, on both sides of the front line, we have to be able to negotiate with all parties. We have to a be able to access victims, whether they be in, in prisons or in refugee camps or you know, on both sides of the battlefield. So we are unarmed and we cannot force our way in. So our presence has to be accepted and respected and our activities have to be understood and protected by all parties to the conflict. And this only works if they understand... Um, the benefits of our presence and that we do not take sides, that we are neutral. Thank you. And on that point, um, everything that you listed there that we have to be able to do needs to be put in the context of where we're doing this. So we're operating in conflict zones. This is, this is our stage. This is where we're working. And we know that emotions very understandably run high there. So how can we do better at explaining uh, to people who are being directly impacted by the effects of armed conflict that it is a non-negotiable, that neutrality is a non-negotiable to protecting and assisting people affected by the effects of war? You're absolutely right to point out the emotional aspect of it. I mean, we've, we've all worked in, in areas of war, and I think uh, anyone who's worked in a, in a war zone knows that their emotions are affected as well. So we're not uh, indifferent. So neutrality is not a question of being indifferent to what's going on or of having sympathy or not. Uh, or it's not even a question of morality. It is a, a, a guiding star that really gives us a compass that gives us a direction how we can navigate the extremely violent and emotional uh, environment of an armed conflict safely to be able to actually bring assistance and protection to victims of armed conflict. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. It's not a moral stance. It's an operating principle. Um, and in an armed conflict, try to publicly take side with one party and then go to the battlefield and try to protect all victims of that conflict. That's not possible. Thank you. Uh, just to shift gears a little bit uh, from neutrality, I'd like to explore another aspect of our work that often comes under scrutiny, and that's our policy of confidentiality. 
So this is a policy, not a principle, and so that means it doesn't carry the same non-negotiable weight. In fact, there is an ICRC doctrine, Doctrine 15, that outlines what action our organization can and cannot take in the event of IHL violations, and it has a fourth and final recourse being public criticism. So could you explain to us a bit how does the ICRC's policy of confidentiality interrelate with the fundamental principles What's the difference and why is all of this so important in practice? Absolutely. Neutrality and impartiality is part of our identity. This is who we are as an institution. Um, Just like a judge in in a trial, as humanitarians in armed conflict, we can never take sides. We cannot fulfill our function if we ever take sides. Just like a judge... We may have a personal opinion, we have personal emotions, but we cannot allow that to affect what we're doing professionally. Therefore, our neutrality is an institutional neutrality that is non-negotiable. We can never, ever take sides. Confidentiality is the way we do our work, the way we prefer to do our work. It provides a protected space where we can interact confidentially, diplomatically, with the belligerents. We can express our concerns and transmit our observations to them, even if they concern violations of the laws of war. Um, And it allows this protected space where we can interact with them without them being immediately exposed to the public and potentially even to judicial proceedings. But if those interventions, as it's our preferred dialogue, which is or our preferred mode of action, which is confidential and bilateral, if that does not succeed in persuading the belligerent, if we have repeated violations of humanitarian law, war crimes, um, if we have no other way of influencing those actors in a confidential and bilateral way, we may Uh, leave that path and escalate to the next level, which would be to try to share our concerns with other states that might be able to influence those belligerents or international organizations that might be able to influence, again, in a confidential and bilateral way, those belligerents. And if that doesn't uh, uh, prove successful, then we can also go to the public and make a so-called declaration on the quality of our dialogue with the belligerents, which basically is a first step to the public to express our concerns without still uh, naming and shaming. Uh, And the very last, uh, at the very end of that escalation process would be a public denunciation of uh, violations of international humanitarian law. So there is an escalation process with our preferences to persuade uh, uh, parties to the conflict to respect international humanitarian law and to correct uh, any misconduct uh, on their own. And uh, we will stand ready to support them, to train them, to provide them with with guidance on that. And as long as that dialogue is fruitful and produces results, we will not go public. Now, again, this is not a moral stance. It's uh, it's not a matter of being complicit, Rather, it is the only way we can actually do this. Imagine if you're a warring party 
and you have an organization in front of you that you know they will collect, they will visit your prisons, they will see perhaps victims of torture uh, that you're responsible for, and then they will go out to the public and denounce you, why would you give them access? Mm -hmm. So it is really a precondition for us to get access to victims and also to sometimes to get back alive. You know, it would be much easier for some belligerents and some armed groups uh, to attack us and kill us. So we will not be potential victim uh, witnesses in a trial rather than, than allowing that, that possibility. And therefore also even the International Criminal Court exempts the employees of the ICRC from testifying in war crimes trials because they recognize the necessity of that for our safety and for our ability to conduct our activities. Thank you for that. So, I mean, it really is literally a, a life and death analysis of the cost and benefits with Absolutely. very high costs coming Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you for that. And just to throw another wrench into the works, uh, we can't overlook the setting uh, about which we operate and the ubiquitous communications backdrop. Humanitarians are no longer working in a world of telegrams and newspapers, but this increasingly interconnected and complex web of human discourse where misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech can and does spread like wildfire. So how can we, as the ICRC, communicate the humanitarian principles clearly in this age of 280 character limits and misinformation cutting us off at the knees? What's our best strategy? I think we have to understand where criticism is coming from. And most of it may not even be malicious. It's understandable. Emotions, as you said, are running high. We feel hurt by what we see in the media, by the news we get about you know, all the suffering that's being caused by armed conflict. And we tend to take sides. That's a human tendency that's natural and that's a, a normal reaction to a abnormal stress situation. So, but we are professionals working in a very difficult environment. And so we have to try to, to, uh, to explain that, that and with, you know, not in a defensive manner, but we need the self-confidence to explain who we are and why we take those, those measures in the way we do. Um, criticism often comes from people who don't, uh, who are far away from the battlefield who uh, may not be aware of what would be the consequences of us changing our stance. Mm -hmm. If we lose access to the victims, well, who will go and protect them? I think we have to ask those that we assist and visit in prisons, in refugee camps, in hospitals, in battlefields all over the world, whether they would like us to be neutral or whether they would like us to take sides and condemn publicly at the cost of losing access to them. Mm -hmm. We have to ask the mother whose son we are keeping alive with her letters in prison and whether she would like us to be neutral and have access to that son or have at least the hope to get access to the son uh, or whether she would like us to take sides and lose that access because we're the only ones who may be able to at some day escort him out of prison alive. And I think this is really the trade-off uh, that we have to communicate. You know, ask the four-year-old child in, lost in a refugee camp whether we should continue to search for her parents on the other side of the front line and negotiate her reunion with her family or whether we should take sides and lose that access. 
That's what neutrality is about, and that's what impartiality is about. And this is what our mission is about and who we are. Thank you, Niels. I find that really moving uh, to hear. And thank you for bringing in that very human element to the work that we do, because that is the, the guiding star uh, that really points us in the right direction. And it, it's excellent segue to my last question, which is about the principle of humanity. And we actually named our podcast after this, uh, The Humanity in War. And the purpose of the principle of humanity is, quote, to protect life and health and to ensure respect for the human being. It promotes mutual understanding, friendship, cooperation, and lasting peace among all people. And this is a, a principle you know, these are, these are words of love, essentially. And, you know, we have colleagues who have been called naive before for, for pointing to this principle of humanity in appealing to actors in, you know, the, the, the underbelly of mankind to do the right thing. Now, instead of advocating for compliance by aligning an actor's interests, like what is their political interest in doing the right thing? What's their economic interest in doing the right thing? We say, no. This is the right thing. This is the law. We've agreed to this as a society. So maybe you can draw a little bit from your experience in your previous roles with this principle of humanity and just the overall concept of it. How have you used that and pointed to it to get actors to comply with the law? Thank you for that question, Lizzie. I think it's a very important one. And there's many memories that come up from my interactions with armed actors in the field. Um, uh, and I'd like to make two points here. First, we often presume that without our intervention as the ICRC and the restraints of the law, military forces and their soldiers would necessarily engage in senseless destruction and killing, committing war crimes with impunity. We sometimes forget that the laws of war have developed from the battlefields and that throughout history, it was the warriors themselves who developed very strict codes of honor of what conduct was considered to be acceptable in war. This has developed through time and certainly requires stronger enforcement. But my own experience is that soldiers actually often suffer from the lack of clear guidance on how to ensure they're doing the right thing. They are often traumatized not as much by the brutality of the armed conflict, but by the haunting question of whether they have actually done the right thing. So the principle of humanity is not some kind of an academic concept, but it is the one guiding star, as you say, which allows us to retain our sanity in the brutal environment of armed conflict. It's really a common value that is shared by all of us. The second point I'd like to make that the principle of humanity that you read out also points far beyond just responding to humanitarian needs, let's say to humanitarian damage that has already been done, but guides us towards promoting peace and conflict prevention. So guides us actually to take a stronger stance also in preventing humanitarian needs and human suffering from arising in the first place. And I think here we as an organization can also in the future take possibly a slightly stronger stance without getting entangled in the politics of it, just from a purely humanitarian perspective. Thank you for that. That's such a valuable perspective. You know, we're not, we're not actually here to impose humanity. We're actually drawing from it and magnifying something that's already there. Uh, I think that's very important. Um, 
I do, just before I let you go, I do like to ask all of my guests one question, which is, what are you reading right now? What's the book that's on your nightstand? And it doesn't have to be, you know, IHL related or even humanitarian, but can you share with us what's on your mind? It's a book called Humankind by Rutger Bregman, and uh, which carries precisely that hopeful uh, message and proves that humans far beyond kind of just a biological instinct of survival uh, we also tend in times of crisis to not show only the worst but also the best in terms of humanity and collaboration and solidarity and so it's a very hopeful book that i would recommend to anyone thank you that's the second second recommendation of that book so i will take it on board now and uh, so i just want to thank you today for for coming in and taking the time to discuss this very important topic with us. Uh, I think that I would like to say that this conversation has just closed the file and everything is crystal clear uh, for everyone involved, but I'm afraid that's not the case and we will have to keep using all of the megaphones that we have. Um, so instead, I'll say until next time and let's keep carrying this torch and doing our jobs to make sure that there's a clear understanding around these important issues. Thank you very much, Lizzie, for having me, and I'm happy to be back anytime. I think it's a message that should be an everyday message for us wherever we go. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.